American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about the first American-born saint, Elizabeth Ann Bailey Seton. Right. She wasn't the first American to be canonized. That was St. Francis Xavier Cabrini, who was an amazing woman in her own right. But Elizabeth Ann Seton was the first person born here in America to be canonized. And by looking at the beginnings of her life filled with comfort and privilege, you wouldn't have pegged her for a sainthood. But there were some early indications and then some tragedies which made a profound difference for her later years. Yes, indeed. So let's talk about those early years. She was born in August of 1774 in New York City, the second daughter of Dr. Richard Bailey and his first wife, Catherine, née Charlton. Both the Bailey and Charlton families had been among the earliest settlers of the New York area, and both were very well respected. And at this point, that also meant they were Anglican. Yes, as all respectable people were. And thus, Elizabeth was destined to be raised a keen member of the Church of England. Well, the Episcopalian Church, as it came to be known in America after the Revolution. Sure. So Dr. Bailey, her father, was a very well-to-do and very important physician in New York. His work took him away from home a good deal. In 1777, when Elizabeth was three years old, her mother died. Richard was distraught, but he knew that his daughters, Elizabeth and her older sister, Mary, needed a mother. So just one year later, he married again, this time to another daughter of prominence, Charlotte Barclay. Her family lines included Roosevelt blood, so we're still talking about some of the oldest families around. The marriage to Charlotte produced five additional children, but not the happiness Dr. Bailey had hoped for. Charlotte favored her own children over Mary and Elizabeth, and eventually she cut relations with them, sending them to live with their father's brother and sister-in-law in the countryside of upstate New York. Elizabeth was only about 10 years old at this point, and she had lost her second mother figure now, the first to death, the second to rejection. The time spent at her uncle and aunt's home was not lost, though. She spent much time outdoors and developed a great appreciation for nature and the peace found there. She spent time riding horses, learning to play piano, and, importantly, poring over scripture. She developed a great capacity for contemplation and wondering about the stories she read in the Bible, a foundation that would serve her well later in life. After her father separated from Charlotte, she was brought back to the city to live in her father's house. She grew and became a fashionable teenager with all the privileges and connections that a girl of her lineage and social class should have. She attended the right parties. She was part of the right circle of friends. Everyone knew who Elizabeth Bailey was and many undoubtedly wanted to be her. In January of 1794, when she was 19 years old, Elizabeth married William McGee Seton, the wealthy heir of a shipping and mercantile firm founded by his father. Like Elizabeth Ann Bailey, William McGee Seton was also the child of very prominent families of New York, and they were also among the wealthiest. So this wedding was that one sensational event of the season. It was like. John F. Kennedy and Jacqueline Bouvier 
They were married by Samuel Provost, who was the first Episcopal bishop of New York. It was huge. And it was a very successful, very happy marriage. They had five children and things were going well. They were good friends with their neighbors on and around Wall Street, including Alexander Hamilton. I've heard of him. Yeah, he's the guy who got in the way of Aaron Burr's bullet. But long before that, he was good friends with the Setons. So William traveled a good deal on behalf of the family firm, including travels to many ports of Europe, including to ports in Italy, where he developed a friendship with the Felici brothers. This will become important soon. And as William traveled, Elizabeth remained in New York, living the life of a wife of a prominent and wealthy businessman. But she was also known for her Christian charity, care for others, and deep religious sentiment. With her sister-in-law, Rebecca, and other like-hearted women, Elizabeth set up the Society for the Relief of Poor Widows with Children to help those affected by the disease outbreaks. So even before she became Catholic, Elizabeth Ann Seton had a heart and drive for helping others. Indeed. But things began to unravel for the Setons at the end of the 1790s. William's health deteriorated and his father died unexpectedly. Since William was the eldest of his father's children, that meant that he had to support his own five children, plus six of his younger siblings, ages 7 to 17. This marked increase in the number of younger children in their home actually gave Elizabeth her first experience teaching lots of children at one time. It was a valuable lesson for her later life. But disaster was on the horizon. Conflict between France and Britain, which led to the War of 1812, caused major problems for the Seton's shipping business. With his ill health and the added stresses, William watched the shipping firm that his father had built go bankrupt in 1801. By year's end, the Setons were destitute, having lost most of their possessions, including their home. As if to go from bad to worse, William's health woes turned out to be tuberculosis. The only thing to do was to get to a warmer climate and hope that his health rallied. So they contacted his old friends, the Felikis. In October of 1803, William, Elizabeth, and their eldest daughter, Anna Maria, made the crossing to Italy, landing in the port city of Livorno. But the reception in Italy was cold, and we mean that literally. Due to a yellow fever outbreak in New York, the health officials in Livorno determined that the Setons had to stay in quarantine for a month. That might not have been so bad, but the seaside stone tower where they were kept was perhaps the worst possible place for a man with tuberculosis. William's condition worsened. The protestations of the Felikis made no difference. Just two weeks after they were released from quarantine, William died. Elizabeth was at her lowest. At 29 years old, she had nothing and was the widowed mother of five. But out of the deepest depths come the highest heights, if we just trust God. Yeah, if we just do that, which can be so difficult at times. The Felikis were Catholic, and while staying with them in Pisa and Florence, Elizabeth began to question them about their faith. She really hadn't known Catholics back in America. I mean, there were Catholics around, but not in polite circles, you know. But the sacraments, the memorare, and public acts of devotion, in particular to the Blessed Sacrament, piqued her curiosity. The brothers and their wives were happy to answer her questions. Elizabeth Ann and Anna Maria were forced to stay in Italy until April 1804, 
and that gave Elizabeth more time to realize that her questions of faith were no longer just academic or idle curiosities. The devotion of these Catholics, particularly to the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, had grabbed a hold of her. She needed to pursue this, even if it meant becoming Catholic. Back in America, her friends and relations, including her Back in America, her friends and relations, including her Anglican ministers, were happy to support the widowed mother of five former fashionable socialite good Anglican. That is, until she began expressing to them that she was considering becoming Catholic. Suddenly, the support dried up. The Feliki stepped in to continue to support her both financially and spiritually. They sent money as well as books on Catholicism. Eventually, through much soul-searching and prayer, she decided she must become Catholic. She was received into the church on March 14, 1805, at St. Peter Parish on Barclay Street, the first and, at the time, the only Catholic parish in New York. St. Peter figures in a number of Catholic stories. We talked about it in episode two regarding the defense of the seal of confession, as well as in episode 31 when we talked about Father Peter Whalen, the angel of Andersonville. We'll likely do an episode just about St. Peter's itself. It has a colorful story all its own. And one year later, Elizabeth Ann was confirmed by Baltimore's Bishop John Carroll, who was still the only bishop in the United States. New York wasn't its own diocese until 1808. To make money, Elizabeth Ann basically turned her home into a boarding school for girls. But as news of her conversion to Catholicism spread, many families withdrew their daughters. About that time, she met Father William Louis Dubourg. Father Dubourg, another who will get his own episode eventually, was a Sulpician priest who had fled France to avoid the bloody reign of terror ravaging that country. In the U.S., he was the founding president-rector of the brand-new St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore, and he had been looking for someone to establish a school for the children of the growing Catholic community, particularly the girls. Elizabeth Ann Seaton, he thought, could fit the bill. And thus the next phase of her life began. DeBorg and Bishop Carroll worked together to bring Seton to Maryland, where they helped her set up a small school for local children. But all three of them were quickly working toward a larger goal, a system of Catholic schools that would be free for those who could not afford to pay. The secular public schools at the time charged tuition and were expensive, so only the upper classes could afford them. So what Carol, DuBorg, and Seton were planning was revolutionary. To make it a reality, Carol and DuBorg knew that a women's religious community would be needed, and they knew that Mother Seton was a fitting head of the establishment. They wanted to bring over Daughters of Charity from France, but ongoing turmoil there prevented the passage. So they helped Seton recruit women from all over the country to join her fledgling community, and they helped them establish their rule of life along the same lines as the Daughters of Charity. One benefit of this type of religious life was that it allowed women in the community who were widowed with children to continue to raise their children. The Seton children ranged from 13 to 7, so Elizabeth Thann was still very much a mother. As the community grew and plans began to coalesce, now Archbishop Carroll decided to formally establish the community as the Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph, and on March 25, 1809, received the solemn vows of Elizabeth Ann Seton. The Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph were born, and Elizabeth Ann Seton was now and forever known as Mother Seton. The next major development was the establishment of their permanent location. 
Baltimore itself had been their home for the past year, but it was not to be their long-term home. That distinction fell upon another very Catholic locality, Emmitsburg, Maryland. Emmitsburg is an intriguing little town among the mountains in north-central Maryland. The Catholic presence there has fascinating beginnings, and it has been a great source of grace for the church in America. And it also figures into our engagement. Not only did Mother Seton establish her religious order and a school there, but when she arrived, it was already home of Father John Dubois and his brand new seminary and college, Mount St. Mary's, which has also blessed the church with many bishops, priests, and important Catholic leaders. Yeah, we've already told the remarkable story of the life of John Dubois in episode 39. But there are two or three more stories to come out of the tiny town of Emmitsburg and Mount St. Mary's. Mother Seton's ticket to Emmitsburg was punched through the intervention of another very interesting character, Samuel Sutherland Cooper. Samuel Sutherland Cooper was a seminarian at St. Mary's Seminary back in Baltimore. He was quite a bit wealthier and more worldwide than the typical seminarian. He had been a sailor and a successful sea captain. So he had made lots of money sailing around the world, until he left that life, became Catholic, and entered seminary. It was while a seminarian that one day, he lamented to his spiritual director that there was no major educational establishment for Catholic girls, and told him that he'd devote a significant sum of money to make this happen. His spiritual director was fairly floored by this because just that very morning, Elizabeth Ann Seaton, who was another of his spiritual directees, had told him that she believed that God intended for Samuel Sutherland Cooper to give her the money she needed to establish a school. The priest had forbidden her to approach him, however, assuring her that if it were God's will, Cooper would also be drawn in that direction. And there he was, saying basically the other side of the same thing on the same day. Right. So Cooper gave Mother Seton $10,000, that's more than $211,000 today, to purchase land and build buildings in Emmitsburg, and off Mother Seton went. So Mother Seton and all of the women who had gathered around her arrived in Emmitsburg in June of 1809, and it was in that month also that the rest of the women agreed to adopt the same manner of dress that Mother Seton maintained as a widow— the black dress, leather belt with a rosary hanging from it, and bonnet. This basically became their habit. Their new home was in a valley at the northwest end of Mary's Mountain, so Mother Seaton named it St. Joseph Valley, and the girls' school which she founded there was, of course, named St. Joseph Academy. So, Mount St. Mary's was the boys' school, and right around the corner was St. Joseph for the girls. Exactly. Makes perfect sense. Right. The life of the sisters was rough in Emmitsburg, but it was filled with grace. They taught at the school and they maintained a strict life of prayer and labor. Mother Seton was also involved over on Mary's Mountain. There's actually a rock near the grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes that is known to be where Mother Seton would sit when teaching the faith. She was connected with two other prominent personages from Mount St. Mary's of that era also. The first was her spiritual director, Father Simon Brute, the French priest who was a co-worker with Father Dubois. He was responsible for keeping the mount open at a time of peril, and he became the first bishop of Vincennes, Indiana. The other was a rough-and-tumble Irish lad who did the gardening at Mount St. Mary's, and who aspired to be a priest, but who had a real hard time with his grades. Father Dubois intended to dismiss him entirely from formation and just let him remain the gardener. But Mother Seton saw the quality of the man and pressed Dubois to pass him through. 
Good thing she did, and Dubois relented, because that man was John Hughes, and many years later he actually succeeded Dubois as Bishop of New York. Both Brute and Hughes will be getting their own episodes in the future. Yeah, we've said that a lot today. There are still so many amazing Catholic stories to tell about this country. Good for us. We have lots of episodes to do. <laughs> Seriously. Well, let's wrap up Mother Seton's story. Mother Seton led the community through great growth. In 1811, the Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph officially adopted a modified version of the rule of the French Daughters of Charity. It wasn't until the 1850s, though, that the Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph finally succeeded in fully joining the French order as Mother Seton had always wanted. But Mother Seton also endured great personal tragedies. In 1812, her beloved daughter Anna Maria died from tuberculosis shortly before her 17th birthday. And just a few years later, in 1816, her youngest, Rebecca, also succumbed to tuberculosis. Even as the order grew, it also suffered losses of younger sisters to TB, and eventually that horrible disease came from Mother Seton. It was in summer of 1820 when the illness first set in for Mother Seton. Her condition worsened as the fall and then the winter wore on until in early January she finally realized that the end was near. On January 3rd, in refusing her medicine, she said, never mind the drink, one communion more, and then eternity. Early the next morning, January 4th, 1821, Mother Seton died. She was 46 years old. After her death, the Sisters of Charity expanded all over. By 1830, they had established schools as far west as Cincinnati and New Orleans, as well as the first hospital west of the Mississippi in St. Louis. As for Mother Seton's family, her only surviving daughter, Catherine, became the first American woman to join the Irish religious order of the Sisters of Mercy, eventually becoming known as Mother Mary Catherine. She lived to the ripe old age of 91, and as of 2019, her order has begun the initial phases of a cause for sainthood. So possibly two Seton saints. Could happen. And as for her two sons, both William and Richard joined the U.S. Navy. William had a long career, while Richard died at sea in 1823 at just 25 years old. Because of this connection, shortly after her canonization, Mother Seton was proclaimed the patroness of the sea services, the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and the Merchant Marines, by then Monsignor John O'Connor, who was the head of Navy chaplains at the time. Mother Seton was beatified in 1963 by Pope St. John XXIII. He said at the beatification, In a house that was very small, but with ample space for charity, she sowed a seed in America, which, by divine grace, grew into a large tree. Her canonization was just 12 years later, in 1975. At the Mass, Pope St. Paul VI said, Elizabeth Ann Seton is a saint. St. Elizabeth Ann Seton is an American. All of us say this with special joy and with the intention of honoring the land and the nation from which she sprang forth as the first flower in the calendar of the saints. Elizabeth Ann Seton was wholly American. Rejoice for your glorious daughter. Be proud of her and know how to preserve her fruitful heritage. May we all work to do just that. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. 
and we ask you to consider supporting the work of SQPN. Yes, now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 per month, after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all our shows, including American Catholic History, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. To learn more about Elizabeth Ann Seton, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country, please visit sqpn.com slash history. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest. <laughs>